Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Unnamed, written by Stephen L. Brooks. A Chilling Victorian Succubus Mystery One Victorian London night, a lamplighter discovers the body of a very old man lying dead in an alley. Scotland Yard calls in the eminent physician Dr. Conan to determine the cause of death. The brilliant and opinionated Conan is often consulted by Scotland Yard, but his sometimes unorthodox solutions frequently have him butting heads with incredulous Yard officials. Despite the man's apparent age, Dr. Conan determines that the victim is no older than 30 and died as the result of rapid aging. Together with his younger assistant, Dr. Archibald Archie Hastings and Hastings' woman friend, the enigmatic independent Gwyneth Rogers, the three begin an investigation that will carry them from the glittering mansions of the wealthy to the squalid hovels of the poor to the darkest heart of Victorian England. What they find will lie far beyond the boundaries of science and medicine and bring them face to face with terrors believed by the average Victorian to belong exclusively to the realms of myth and fiction. The Unnamed is a dazzling, original, brilliant, and unusual horror novel by a rising star of popular fiction. No one who loves an enthralling and original story well told should miss this Steve Brooks masterpiece of terror in the London fog during the days of Henson cabs and gaslight. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Unnamed. Chapter 1 The fog wove its way through the London streets, as it always had, heavy and damp turning the air into a blinding blur. Here and there street lamps tried their best to furnish some light for those who were out, but their efforts were feeble at best. It was only seven o'clock in the evening, but as the autumn sun had already set, it might as well have been midnight. Most people were home at the dinner table, though there were a few still out and about. They moved cautiously through the grey darkness, blind to what might lie in their path, including other fellow pedestrians. As the lamps were only now being lit on some corners, there was even less guidance for their path. Lanterns hung on passing hansoms and wagons, at least warned people of their coming, and served to differentiate between road and walk. Andy Packer made his way through, as he did nearly every night at this time, sometimes including Sundays, his long, slender, hollow bronze staff, with its glowing taper in one hand and a heavy wooden stool in the other as he walked from street lamp to street lamp. For he was a lamplighter, and it was his duty to light each of the street lamps along his route. He was small, and even his eldest son, who was fifteen, was taller than he, and at each lamppost he set down his stool, stepped upon it, reached as high as he could with his staff, opened the valve, and lit the gas. Once the lamp burned its soft amber glow, he stepped down, took up the stool, and went on to his next lamppost. He had a lantern to light his own way, and sometimes it was difficult to juggle the three heavy things, but long usage had made it second nature. Even so, the work was tedious, and he stopped a moment just outside an alley, and sat down upon the stool for a brief rest. 
This wasn't the safest part of town, by any means. It was just west of Whitechapel, where all that nasty business was a few years back. The number of dives and brothels far outnumbered the more respectable shops. Several of those whom he saw going through the darkness were headed into bars and gambling hells and other such places, the kind which Andy's vicar, old Dr. Kirkwood, called Dens of Iniquity. Andy agreed with Ham and was always uncomfortable along this section of his route, though he wasn't above having a nip or two now and then, but this was not only the quarter assigned to him, but his own little house wasn't far. Andy was a good man, and raised his brood of three right. His wife was a true helpmate in that regard, and their three boys were growing up into good, God-fearing citizens. Andy rose from his stool and stretched. He still had some ground to cover before he was done. As he lifted his lantern, he dimly saw something lying just inside the valley. Curiosity pulled him toward it, and he held the lantern high to see better. The first thing he saw were the boots. Then, as he moved the lantern, he saw the rest of the body lying in a twisted, grotesque position. Andy gulped back the bitter gall that rose to his throat. He had seen some sights in his day, and even his share of corpses when he was in Her Majesty's Navy. But there was something about this corpse that sent a chill through him. One of the hands was stretched toward where he stood, and he saw it clearly. It was the hand of an old man, a man of immeasurable age. A ring curled loosely around a finger that was more bone than flesh, and that flesh of a sick grey pallor Andy had last seen when his own father died in his house two years before. The lantern dropped from his fingers, its iron frame protecting it from shattering, and Andy was in the nearest pub in an instant. Whiskey, he cried to the barkeeper, a round mustachioed man with a half-circle of dark hair framing his bald dome. And he was well known here, as no doubt he was in several other pubs, and a few of his cronies looked up from their drinks as he entered, the bartender polishing a glass that needed more tension than the filthy cloth he used could provide, regarded him silently, taking his time getting bottle and glass to his frightened customer. See ye now, the bartender said while pouring. Ain't no cause to be so nervous. And he drank the glass dry in one gulp. The whiskey burned its way down. Another. He wasn't as much of a drinking man as some, and Daisy was sure to get on him about it when he got home, but he needed something to settle him. The bartender was glad to oblige and refilled the glass. And he drained it again and leaned against the bar. "'You're pale as a ghost,' the bartender said, and he was surprised by his own laughter. "'That's a good one,' he said, pale as a ghost. "'Not as pale as the poor bloke over in the alley.' His behaviour had already attracted attention. The other denizens of the bar, some of them Andy's chums, now took note. One of them said, "'What poor bloke?' "'Let's go see,' another suggested." Soon nearly all of them were out the door, including the bartender, and he poured himself one more glass, downed it, and joined them. "'Where's the copper?' someone cried. "'Never one around when you need him,' some homegrown sage added. "'Hey, police! Hey!' a couple of men shouted. 
The erstwhile bar patrons now formed a sort of human barrier to the entrance of the alley, and he could only stand on the outside, and that was fine with him. He didn't need to see that bleached body again, not if he could help it. A tall, uniformed bobby, his moustache forming a thick, unruly arch around his downturned mouth, came strolling around a corner at the man's call. Yeah, yeah, break it up. What's all this? The babble of explanations fell over each other, just as the speakers themselves fell over each other, trying to be first to tell. The bobby ignored them all and shouldered his way in. His dinner, hastily eaten minutes before in a pub, not known for either haute cuisine or cleanliness, came rushing back up at him, and it took a manly swallow to force it down where it belonged. He turned from the sight far more eagerly than he had shoved himself in to see it, cleared his throat mightily and shouted, Now which one of you found this? The babble resumed through this time, and Bobby managed to make out the name Andy from the confusion. Which one's Andy? A voice barely separable from the rest croaked meekly. It's me. The crowd parted, and the bobby saw the little man standing in the street. Ah, it's you, the bobby asked, and he nodded. Well, come here and tell me how you found him. And he shook his head. The bobby didn't force the issue. He didn't relish looking at the corpse again himself. All right, I'll come to you. He shouldered his way back out of the crowd. Some of your lads, get a blanket or sheet and cover him up. Two or three went off, presumably, to do just that. Now, how did you find the body? The bobby asked. Andy told him all the details. Well, this is too much for the likes of me. I'm going to call in the yard. Andy was already shuddering, and the three whiskies had done nothing to soothe his nerves. Well, will I have to talk to them? Sure you will. In fact, come along with me and we'll go now. Andy was anxious to get home and told him so. Any of you know where Andy here lives? I do, one of the men said. You go and tell his wife. I got him, and he's not in any trouble, but I'm taking him to the yard. Tell Daisy and my kids not to worry, Bill. Andy gripped his hand. Will you do that for me? Sure, Andy, I'll tell him. Don't worry. It took a while before a cab came, and the bobby commandeered it. This here's police business, he explained. Take us to the yard. He had to nearly haul Andy up into the cab before he sat across from him. My name's Jeffers, the bobby said, offering his hand. And you're Mr... Packer, Andy replied, finding comfort in the familiarity of a handshake. Just call me Andy. All right, Andy it is. You say you're a lamplighter. That's right. Well, let's see if one of those inspector chaps can shed some light of their own on this, right? Andy nodded. Right. He wasn't the adventurous type, and he wished this little escapade was over. But he knew it wouldn't be for some time. Big Ben was stalling midnight when Andy Jeffers and Inspector Holcomb of the Metropolitan Police returned to the alley. Jeffers led Holcomb to the body, and Andy told his story for what seemed like the fifteenth time that night. There was already the stench of putrefaction in the alley from the normal everyday waste, some of which had resided there from the time the grand old city had been built. 
the growing odor of decay from the body was just one more stink added to it. All three said their piece through handkerchiefs held over their noses for what little protection they provided. Holcomb uncovered enough of the body to see for himself and threw the sheet back over it. Not much I can make of it either, Jeffers, Holcomb said. He was a medium-sized man, thick in the chest with a heavy moustache that fell untrimmed over his lower lip. He found it to be good camouflage when interrogating witnesses and suspects, helping disguise any reaction he might make. No, sir, Jeffers answered. I sent a runner after Dr. Conan. He's helped before in police work. Maybe he can give us some idea who this fellow is and what happened to him. There's that ring, Jeffers reminded him. Right, Jeffers, I saw that ring. Don't rightly fit him, though. He knelt by the body and lifted the sheet from the left hand. Might as well take it off him. Holcomb's fingers had nearly taken the ring when a voice called out. Holcomb, leave it alone. Don't touch anything. Holcomb's hand halted as though frozen, and he looked up at the newcomer. He squatted like a carved figure as he alibied himself. Oh, it's you, Dr. Conan. I was just going to hold it for you. How many times have I told you and your colleagues not to disturb a body when you find one, Hey, How many? Dr. H. Conan had just stepped from a cab and strode over to loom over Holcomb's crouched figure. Dr. H. Conan, no one knew what the H stood for, was six foot, but his spare build made him seem shorter. His keen, razor-sharp features exerted a strength of will that intimidated many two and three times his size. Hair that had been full and dark was now thin and white, though the sharp-pointed hairline was still discernible above his high, intelligent brow. Archie Hastings, his young protégé, followed his master. Handsome, bright, and fresh from the medical school at King's College, Dr. Conan had selected him from his graduating class to be his assistant. As far as he knew, Archie had never met or even heard of Dr. Conan before receiving his letter requesting his presence. He had been with Dr. Conan for nearly a year now, and the doctor had not disclosed how or why he had selected him from among the many other graduates. He was, however, finding this to be the most gratifying experience he might have had. This was not the first murder scene he had visited with Dr. Conan, though he was certainly not yet by any means accustomed to it. Dr. Conan took charge. You, he said to Andy. What's your name? Andy Packer, your worship, he said. None of that nonsense. I'm a doctor, not a bishop. Was it you found the body, then? Yes, sir. And except for the sheet someone has placed over him, and Inspector Holcomb's attempt at removing evidence, it is still as you found it? Yes, sir. I didn't dare touch it, sir. Why... What killed him might be catching, Dr. Conan nodded, as though considering it. Well, I will be looking into that. Inspector, will you be so kind as to remove that sheet? Holcomb removed the sheet, and the worsening odour was fully released. Holcomb, Andy and Hastings covered their noses, but Conan seemed undisturbed.
he examined the corpse, touching and poking and prodding, unafraid of contamination. Taking a magnifying glass from his pocket, he took a closer look at the face, particularly the teeth, and gave a short humming sound. Find anything? Holcomb asked. Dr. Conan ignored him and turned his attention to the ring, examining it with the magnifying glass and emitting another short hum. He took his handkerchief from pocket and delicately removed the ring from the corpse's finger. Here now, I was going to do that for you, Holcomb said. Dr. Conan has his own way of doing things, Hastings reminded him. I know, but if he was going to take the ring anyway, why didn't he let me get it for him, when I all but had it in my hand? He's taught me to let things alone until the right time in cases like this, Hastings said. I suppose the time wasn't yet right when you were about to take it. Holcomb had some other things to say about it, but kept them to himself. Dr. Conan knelt with the handkerchief spread on his hand, and the ring resting on it in his palm. He examined it further with a glass, then closed his fist around it, wrapping the ring in the folds of his handkerchief and slipping it into his pocket. He stood up. A man his age would often be stiff from this sort of prolonged kneeling, but Dr. Conan showed no signs of it. You have men coming to remove the body? he asked Holcomb. Yes, in fact I thought they would be here by now. A wagon pulled up, and two burly men stepped down from it. Somebody from the yard called for us, one of them said. Yes, I did. I'm Inspector Holcomb. We have a body for you to remove. A body? the man shrugged his huge shoulders. Won't be the first time. Where's the poor stiff? Holcomb pointed it out. Blimey, what did he mean? Looks like he was older than me mother-in-law, and that's saying a lot. He pulled a blanket from the wagon. Go on, Charlie. Let's get this fellow to where he's going. Take him to my surgery, Dr. Conan said, giving them an address. He dropped a few coins in the man's meaty paw. And be very gentle with him. Gentle? He's dead, ain't he? You ain't feeling no pain, you can be sure. Just the same, the body appears to be very delicate. Be careful how you move him. The heavy shoulders shrugged again. Like you say, governor. I am a doctor, Conan advised him coldly. And I abhor politicians. Just see that you handle the body with care, and I will further reward you when you reach my offices. Right you are, the man said. You are the bloke, Charlie. Be careful with this bag of bones. In spite of their rough crudity, they were good at following orders. The blanket was slowly slid under the corpse, and it was lifted gently onto the bed of the wagon. Dr. Conan's cabby was still waiting and ready. Andy gathered his lantern, lighter and stool, and asked, Will you need me any more tonight? Holcomb glanced at Conan, who shook his head. No. Where can we drop you? No, thanks. I still have to finish me job. He hurried off into the fog. Have to hand it to him, Holcomb said. Finding a corpse like that, then going right on with his job like nothing happened. If he doesn't finish his job, Hastings said, he might lose it. Holcomb nodded. You're probably right.
The three boarded the cab. Conan and Hastings were dropped at the former's surgery, and Holcomb continued on to the yard. What do you think caused this man's death, Doctor? Hastings asked, as they entered the small back room which Conan used as an examining room and surgery. Was it just old age? Old age, Conan retorted, when this man was probably no older than twenty-five or thirty. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Unnamed. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.